This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no debunking, no belief, no, I didn't get those in the right order, and no, I have not mentioned the nine for the last time. This is The Stargate Conspiracy. So The Stargate Conspiracy is a book. It's not... um, anything else. It's a book called The Stargate Conspiracy, The Truth About Extraterrestrial Life and the Mysteries of Ancient Egypt by Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince. And it came out in, uh, looking, this is awkward, I should know this, 1999, which makes sense, as we'll see. And I picked it up probably in like 2000, 2001, And I've never read it until about a week ago because it wasn't a topic I was super interested in. I'm not a big ancient aliens guy, as you might have gathered from our episode on the Nine. And then I started looking into the Nine, and I was looking through some of my books for references to it, and I happened to look in this one, and hey, it uses the Nine, this book uses the Nine, as an example of a sinister, well, conspiracy. If you haven't heard our episode on the Nine, don't worry, this will still make sense, or it would make as much sense as it would if you had listened to that episode. But you should check it out at some point, because people seem to like it, um, which is always the case with the episodes I'm not happy with. And just to clarify, this book is not about a conspiracy to keep Stargate SG-1 and its spinoffs on the air far longer than the concept could actually support. Although the book and or the show and the movie, etc., do get referenced in the book. No, this conspiracy, the Stargate conspiracy, is about something different. Something sinister and creepy and far-reaching that will affect every single one of us. Unless it doesn't. So, Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince have written a number of books, and a number of them before they wrote the Stargate conspiracy. Most of them have to do with historical mystery conspiracy type topics, the Turin Shroud, or Shroud of Turin, I'm never sure what to call it, the Templars and conspiracy theories surrounding the Templars, Holy Blood, Holy Grail style stuff, or if you're more pedestrian, Da Vinci Code kind of stuff. In fact, their work was so influential on Dan Brown's book and the subsequent film that Picknett and Prince actually Um, were featured in cameos in the Da Vinci Code film, which is pretty cool. So this book is about what they sort of call the new Egyptology, the Graham Hancock, we, the the true history of Egypt has been hidden from us forever because of an academic conspiracy. It talks about the face on Mars and the pyramids on Mars, extraterrestrial contact, all kinds of stuff coming together in a big stew of weirdness. So what is the point of the whole book being good writers? And they are very good writers, especially for this genre. Picknett and Prince set out their, their sort of thesis very close to the beginning of the book. 
The bitter controversy surrounding the idea of a long-dead civilization on Mars has also been absorbed into this campaign and, like the mysteries of Egypt, has been pressed into service to present a carefully stage-managed message. Essentially, it proposes that the ancient gods were extraterrestrials, and they're back. But the subtext is very clever. Only certain chosen people hear their words, and only certain chosen people will be part of the revelations to come. We can hazard a guess at the identity of some of the chosen, but others may be rather surprising. So, connections between a lost ancient history, extraterrestrial figures posing as gods, messages being transmitted through certain conduits here on Earth. Is this sounding at all familiar? If you heard our episode about the Nine, yes, it probably should be. If you haven't heard our episode about the Nine, just stay tuned. So, ancient aliens posing as gods and the face on Mars and pyramids on Mars and the new Egyptology. So maybe that's a big deal for people who care about that stuff. But what about the rest of us? Who cares? Picknett and Prince explain why we should be perhaps a little bit concerned. Even the lives of those with no interest in such subjects will be inevitably touched by this campaign to have us believe and be persuaded to think in a certain way. We came to realize with heavy hearts that part of this plot is to prepare us to accept certain ideas that we would normally find unacceptable, perhaps even repugnant. Make no mistake, this amounts to cultural and spiritual brainwashing on a lavish scale. I'm not going to lie, that sounds a little bit concerning. Now, in order to explore these ideas. We're going to go through the book in order, which is how most books should be gone through. We're not going to get exhaustively into granular detail on this. And at this point, I should probably explain a little bit about the whole thought process behind this episode even existing. Initially, this was going to be something that was part of our episode about the nine. But as I got into it, I began to realize that It was too big and too overall different from the rest of the nine stuff to really fit in the nine episode if I wanted it to remain sort of manageable. But at the same time, there was no way just to pull the nine stuff from Picnet and Prince out of the context of the Stargate conspiracy book and say, These two authors, in a book that I'm not going to tell you about, also said this about the Nine. Why did they say this about the Nine? It's too long to get into. So that didn't make any sense either. So I was left with this this sort of question of, do I just ignore the Stargate conspiracy, or do I make the Stargate conspiracy its own episode? I decided to make it its own episode, as you are hearing right now. However, as I got into it, And this is some behind-the-scenes stuff and and some process stuff and some thinking stuff that probably you don't care about. I began to realize that this book, just on its own as an episode, could get fairly into the sorts of issues that episodes that deal with a single nonfiction book that isn't like a weirdo contact e-book tend to have. And, And then they say this, and then they say this. So we're going to go through and sort of hit the high points of the argument they're making and sort of how they support that. And then we'll sort of sum up what's going on with it. So a little different approach that this one was, was difficult to, uh, to sort of get my head around because conspiracy books, and this is really more of a conspiracy book than a UFO book. Conspiracy books tend to be, 
Well, there's a reason it's sort of the meme and stereotype of the corkboard with note cards and, you know, miles of string connecting all these disparate ideas. It tends to be something that's difficult to encapsulate or crystallize in any sort of, you know, normal way. So after their kind of introduction and thesis, they launch into a chapter sort of recapping Egyptian mythology, and it's pretty standard Egyptian mythology. And then they move into a chapter called Egypt, New Myths for Old, about what they're sort of talking about as the new Egyptian theology, mythology, fairly similar in some ways. Researchers like Graham Hancock, who they talk about quite a bit, um, and other people whose work asserts in a very basic way, I'm sort of stating this, that asserts that things in Egypt are older than conventional scholarship believes, many times dating back to a magical year of 10,500 BCE. There's also, many of these thinkers often assert, an older, perhaps unknown civilization that was responsible for some things like the Sphinx and things like that, that have been attributed to ancient Egyptians at a much more recent date. These ideas and narratives have been co-opted, they argue, uh, or Picknett and Prince argue. These ideas and narratives have been co-opted or maybe they are an intricate part of this conspiracy, this conspiracy to weave together a narrative of ancient extraterrestrial gods, a hidden history of planet Earth, and a connection to the planet Mars. So who's involved with this? This sounds like a confusing, elaborate thing, and it is. Who's behind this? As this investigation proceeds and we carefully strip away the layers of false extrapolation and strange affiliations, a much wider conspiracy is revealed. This extends well beyond the confines of Egyptology, old or new, and involves several intelligence agencies, including the CIA and Britain's MI5, occult groups, and even some of the world's top scientists. Well, that doesn't sound good, but I do want to be really nitpicky, and they mentioned Britain's MI5 and intelligence services along with the CIA. What about MI6, the secret intelligence service? That's more of the externally focused sort of international espionage stuff in the United Kingdom, unless I'm wrong about that, but I don't believe I am. In any case, any kind of spiritual historical conspiracy that will affect every man, woman, and child on the planet potentially involving international intelligence agencies, that, you know, doesn't sound ideal, but maybe I'm exaggerating the scope and the scale of this cover-up, this operation, this conspiracy. How big is this? This extraordinary conspiracy centers upon the creation of the expectation of imminent quasi-religious revelations connected with ancient Egypt, cynically exploiting the spiritual hunger and craving for miracles of the Western world. This is not some minor social experiment, but in effect a large-scale campaign that takes many forms and uses many different religious, spiritual, new age, and even political masks. So this is going to affect all of us. Well, at least all of us in the Western world, anyway, whatever they presume the Western world is. I think that's a, a difficult concept, but you know, it's, it's one that's become kind of sort of automatic and cliched. So what's at stake with all this? Honed by decades of intensive and often less than ethical intelligence experience, this conspiracy is, in our view, the most insidious yet dangerous assault on the collective free will of the West. 
those at the heart of this plot care little for either the Egyptian mysteries or the spiritually bereft. All they care about is power and control. This is pretty astounding. They make it sound very big, very dangerous, very scary. Assault on the collective free will of the West. This is mind control and manipulation on a massive scale. And we've seen things like this before. We've seen concepts like this before in conspiratorial stuff, often connected with with UFOs. Any discussion of the New World Order conspiracy theories, for example, or One World Government conspiracy theories, often includes some kind of spiritual dimension, a, a negative spiritual dimension that is often attributed to the malign influence of the so-called New Age in some way, which is is sort of tangentially connected to some of the stuff going on with the Stargate conspiracy and what Picnet and Prince are worried about. They continue to talk about a lot of the theories that the new Egyptologists have come up with, including dating of the Sphinx, things like that finding the ancient hall of records and that connects back to edgar casey stuff as well they also talk about the theories that robert temple had about the star sirius and how that played into ancient cosmology and mythology and potentially ancient alien contact things now sirius deserves its own episode from us down the road so we're going to leave that to one side but there's a strong Atlantis-Egypt connection, which goes back to the Nine, but also Edgar Cayce, also Masons, as we've said. And this book came out in the late 90s, so we also get Y2K. And they've got some quotations from Graham Hancock that are downright millennial. The millennium is rushing in. There is much work to do for all who feel part of the same quest, namely to bring about a new and much-needed spiritual and intellectual change for the planet. Giza, without a doubt, has a major role to play. Okay, so this is this is very strange in the sense that someone like Hancock can go so sort of thoroughly between you know I've got new theories about archaeological things that are you know profoundly you know based in provable fact to this kind of I don't want to say la-di-da sort of airy, goofy stuff, but, you know, profound period of spiritual and intellectual change. I'm a little cynical about it because I lived through it, right? I mean, most of us did, um, unless our numbers skew way lower age-wise than I think. But we mostly um, think about uh, you know, Y2K stuff in the past tense. We remember a lot of this. It's a huge turning point for humanity. And Hancock does have some opinions on the two directions in which humanity may choose to move during this time. Poised on the edge of the millennium, at the end of a century of unparalleled wickedness and bloodshed in which greed has flourished, humanity faces a stark choice between matter and spirit, the darkness and the light. So not a choice about what to do, what actions to take in the material world, but a choice between, if I look back at what it says here, a choice between matter and spirit. Not just what to do with matter, oh, we should probably be less greedy and kill fewer people, but a choice, he presents this very much as a, a choice between matter and spirit, between you know abandoning the material world. To, I suppose to the extent one can do that, but he sort of, you know, 
parallels these things, matter and spirit, with darkness and light. We're also introduced to a member of this group named Robert Boval, who established something called Project Equinox 2000. Now, a lot of the material about this is missing from the internet, but a, a big part of Project Equinox 2000 was to have a massive ceremony at the pyramids during the millennium celebrations. But from snippets of the website I've been able to uh, to resurrect via the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine, I was able to find things about something called the Alexandria Project, for example. Robert Boval and Yuri Stoyanov have instigated a plan to set up a new Neoplatonic Academy based in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. The objective is to revive the ancient Alexandrine interest in hermetic studies and related subjects. The project is to coincide with the opening of the new millennium slash age and the completion of the new Library of Alexandria. A full and detailed announcement will soon be made on this website. Stay tuned. Now, the authors um, dig up that Project Equinox 2000 was funded by something called Concordium, which was a nonprofit foundation based in New York that, quote, sponsors research into alternative technology and philosophies that may, in Boval's words, bring enlightenment and spirituality to the world. That's what Picknett and Prince say about it. So it's interesting that we have um, th- this other project going on, and the website is is full of these sort of press releases about things like the Alexandria Project, which, as far as I know, was not completed, and the Equinox 2000 ceremony, big ceremony at the Great Pyramid was never held either. But um, here's a, another little snippet of a press release that Boval issued. Rudolf Gattenbrink has recently been staying at the Mina House Hotel in Cairo. During this time, Robert Boval and Simon Cox met with him several times. The pair also met with Dr. Zahi Hawass on Wednesday, 3rd February. Simon was in attendance as a witness. A full report on these events will be posted soon. Again, as far as I could tell, no report was posted soon or otherwise. Although, if it's, if it's not there anymore and it wasn't archived by the Wayback Machine, but I couldn't even find a link to any supposed report about the meeting with these, uh, with these people. Now, the authors speculate that people involved and leading the new Egyptology are attempting to prove the claims of Edgar Cayce about the age of things and and the pre-man beings who lived here. And they note that that the association, yeah, yeah, the Association for Research and Enlightenment, ARE, Edgar Cayce's organization, is funding some of the research into these Egyptian ruins. And they also are involved in um, the search for the Hall of Records, sort of more specifically. There's also a connection between some of the new Egyptology, Picknett and Prince point out, and SRI, or the Stanford Research Institute, which brings in a connection to something that is sort of tangential to UFOs and the paranormal, and sort of solidly in that sort of conspiratorial wing of things, remote viewing and government-funded research into psychic ability, and which also has a connection to the title of this very book. The term Stargate has been popularized in recent years because of the successful 1994 movie and later television series of the same name, which presented the idea of an ancient device that, properly operated, could transport human beings to other worlds. 
Presumably, the producers knew that the ancient Egyptian sabah meant both star and gate or door, although the reason why a remote viewing project was given the name Stargate remains tantalizingly unclear. Tantalizingly unclear. I like to think that operational code names and things like that are generated randomly or chosen randomly somehow, so there isn't any even unconscious clue as to what the project might be. Um, but yeah, it's kind of suspicious that it was called something like Stargate when you can put together all these other things. And like any good conspiracy book, and this is a good conspiracy book, it's a really good one, the authors engage in some tantalizing speculation. Are they looking for a real working Stargate as in the movie, maybe following instructions given by remote viewers? Or, more disturbingly, have they already found it? This stupendous and very romantic idea remains speculation. And I think it remains speculation to this day. But it's the sort of thing you read books like this for, right? Not just for connecting the dots between these varied and different organizations and groups and goals and seeing what they might be working toward, but assigning to it some higher meaning and occasionally reaching a little bit uh, beyond what you're able to entirely grasp as far as what your evidence suggests. Now, something else they get in, which I really, really appreciate, is the notion or the, the argument that what's basically going on here, also what's going on here, is that a bunch of Europeans and Americans are basically co-opting Egyptian history and myth for their own purposes. But what can be said with certainty is that virtually all the individuals and groups involved in the present activity at Giza are engaged in exploiting the culture, religion, and even the gods of the ancient Egyptians to fulfill various aims and agendas. Essentially, they show little respect for the mysterious geniuses who built the pyramids and the Sphinx for their own specific mystical reasons. Now, while I might peg those reasons and purposes as being probably making money in some way, uh, selling books, getting on documentaries, making money on the speaking tour. Picnet and Prince, of course, think that the, the purposes of those behind the new Egyptology and all of these things sort of going along with this are much more, uh, much more nefarious. We then, in the book, reach the inclusion of a figure who is going to get his own episode at some point, probably, because um, I'm really running out of excuses not to talk about this person, and that person is Richard Hoagland, the face-on-Mars guy. And they begin to talk about this connection, supposed connection between Mars and Egypt that emerges when probes in the 1970s take photographs that point out or that, that illustrate things that look kind of like pyramids or kind of like a face. And they did not let me down. They did include a mention of the mid-1970s Doctor Who story, The Pyramids of Mars, with Tom Baker, one of the absolute best Doctor Who stories of all time. Um, it's great. Now, Richard Hoagland, back in the... He's, he's, got a, he's had a career as a... He worked at a science museum... He worked as a consultant for CBS during some NASA stuff. You can Google him. If you've heard any of his appearances on Coast to Coast AM or anything like that back in the day, you heard his bio trotted out endlessly. If you do some looking around on the internet, uh, as we will when we do an episode on him, you'll find that some of it may be exaggerated 
to a certain degree. Some of it is um, obfuscated to a certain degree. Um, he talks about the Angstrom medal he won when really there's a real thing called the Angstrom prize. He did not get that. He got a medal that was created by some people for him or something like that. So in the 1980s, um, the early 80s, he, he writes a book called The Monuments of Mars. It's gone through numerous editions. There's sort of a sequel book called uh, Dark Moon about stuff like that. And in it, he talks about the face on Mars, the pyramids, and and he sees all sorts of things that other people have seen, a face, pyramids, things like that. But he goes further, and he sees connections between these things that indicate without a doubt in his mind that there was an ancient civilization. And he connects this to Egypt. And then there's sort of a, a break in his activities, and then it picks up again in the late 1980s. And they're he's going really hard on this, um, this Egypt connection. One of the people involved was a guy named Tom Routenberg and Picknett and Prince sort of record what Routenberg's reaction to some of Hoagland's ideas was. At first, I thought it was some kind of a joke or maybe a complex social experiment being conducted by the CIA to study psychological reactions to such a hypothetical discovery. I mean, SRI involvement, faces on Mars, what would you think? Was this an elaborate psychological experiment sponsored by the defense community? Well, Tom, to be honest, I think everything is some sort of experiment funded by the defense community <laughs> to some degree or another. But again, that's, uh, that's just me. But sort of bolstering that idea, uh, Picknett and Prince point out that one of the people who was sort of a contributor or involved or at least a supporter of the independent Mars mission, as it was called then, which eventually would become the Enterprise mission as Hoagland continued his bizarre habit of connecting things to Star Trek with no earthly reason to do so. Um, one of the people involved was a guy named Jim Shannon, C-H-A-N-N-O-N, who was behind an idea called the First Earth Battalion, a sort of New Age-themed um, branch of the military. If you've heard of this, it's probably from reading John Ronson's book, The Men Who Stare at Goats. So that brings us full circle back to some of the remote viewing stuff, the psychic spying type of thing. They're drawing these connections. And Pickett and Prince also draw some interesting connections about what happened when Hoagland's operation sort of had its, its first early 80s burst of activity, faded out, and then came back. Between July 1984 and late 1988, nothing much seems to have happened. Then came a revival of the project, with an influx of new personnel and, it seems, a very different agenda. There was a notably close connection between the new Mars mission and the U.S. intelligence community. What was this connection? We will take a look at that when we return. <laughs> We'll be back in a week when we um, revisit this, fielding your questions and comments about the Stargate conspiracy, the book, and the potential for a real conspiracy. And Samantha will be back to give us her reaction and ask some questions since she's up to date on all the nine stuff as well. Then, on our next regular episode, in two weeks, if you're listening to this in real time, we're going back to a contactee experience. Um, this time, it's a guy named Carl Van Vierden, another guy named Edward, and a UFO contact from planet Kaldas. 
As I've mentioned before, I'll be giving one of the presentations at this year's Strange Realities Conference, which will be held both in person in Nashville and online everywhere. And that's uh, going to be from October 15th through the 17th, that weekend. In-person tickets are very limited, but the live streaming option is great. And you can check it out at strangerealitiesconference.com. Loads of great speakers. And I'm going to be talking about, uh, I haven't come up with a great title yet, but saucer felons. So saucer criminals, flying saucer criminals. I think if you've been listening to this show for a while, you've got some in mind, but it's a topic that I hopefully will be able to have some fun with, and I hope the audience will as well. You can check out past episodes of the show at Saucer Life, and there also you'll find links where you can support us. Uh, There's also a link in the show notes. We greatly appreciate support, uh, financial support, moral support, emails, messages, all of that that we've been receiving over the months and, you know, four years we've been doing this. So it's greatly appreciated. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at SaucerLife, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blanc, Michigan 48480. And The Saucer Life is, as always, available wherever you can find podcasts, and probably some places where you can't. So, Picnet and Prince realized that the project was getting what they call, quote, support and encouragement from Congressman Robert Rowe. Now, Rowe was a member of the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology, which oversaw NASA. And in his role as a supporter of Hoagland's independent Mars mission, or the Enterprise mission, whichever you want to call it, helped lobby NASA to take new photographs of Mars, clearer photographs of Mars, better photographs of Mars. Here's an interesting quotation from Picknett and Prince. Quote, Roe, it should be noted, was also a member of the Congressional Permanent Committee on Intelligence, end quote. So there is a connection between the world of intelligence and Hoagland's Mars mission. Then they point out that in 91, Roe abruptly stepped down from the committee overseeing NASA. I believe he stayed on the Intelligence Committee uh, after that. But then they, they go into into more people coming into uh, to Hoagland's circle, uh, David Myers and, and Errol Torin and Mark Carlotto. And they have helped over the years Hoagland develop his so-called message from Cydonia and, and develop this narrative that there is a message in the things that are built on Mars because they are built things, right? And that these are being you know, communicated to us. And if we can decipher them, we can learn all sorts of stuff. And Hoagland, when he talked about this was, I don't know, kind of, kind of messianic, kind of, I don't know, almost contactee-ish, but very much um, positive about what the outcome would be for humanity. For it is now clear that if appropriately researched and then applied to many current global problems, the potential radical technologies that might be developed from the message of Cydonia could significantly assist the world in a dramatic transition to a real new world order, if not a literal new world. That's dynamite, Dick. What else do you have to say? For if the Martians hadn't come from Earth or Mars, then there was just one place left they could have come from, from beyond the solar system and bearing a humanoid image either in their genes or minds. So, the aliens aren't Martians. They just stopped off at Mars, 
and were responsible for creating the human race, like ancient alien gods, right? So how does all this work? How, what are we supposed to learn from the supposed Martians, from this message at Sidonia? Well, for Hoagland, and if we ever do a Hoagland episode, see how I sort of hedged my bets on that? If slash when we do a Hoagland episode, we will learn all about hyperdimensional physics and the importance of the sort of number, the frequency 19.5. Hoagland, like some others, develops this connection between Mars and Egypt. He points out similarities between the face on Mars and the Sphinx. And Pignett and Prince believe that these ideas and connections could be part of a process designed to soften up or condition humanity. Perhaps the release of this information is an exercise in deception or in softening up the public to accept certain ideas, even to the point of promoting these ideas when the facts, as currently known, do not support them. There seems to us to be an air of desperation to make us believe, whether we want to or not, and whether the evidence fits or not. And that is worrying. So why are powerful people supposedly interested in doing this? What is the reason why people in positions of power, like on House Intelligence Committees and things like that, be interested in promoting the Mars-Egypt connection? We can suggest two main hypotheses that may account for the mounting official interest in such apparently off-the-wall scenarios. One is a conspiracy about something real, and the other is a conspiracy to make us believe something that is unreal. So to elucidate this, basically hypothesis one, they explain, is that the messages that will be drawn out of the things in Egypt and on Mars are basically false. And at best, they say, at best, they are wishful thinking or delusions. Data may be forced to fit a preconceived set of notions. They want to use these mysteries to further their own own plans. In particular, religious, spiritual beliefs, things like that. And they say kind of Masonic ideologies. And they say, quote, they would even form an exercise in the manipulation of mass psychology but on a much grander and more worrying scale. So it's a way to promote new spiritual beliefs. It's a way to promote some sort of Masonic conspiracy, or it's a way to simply experiment on humanity. The other hypothesis, and this is an interesting one, is that there is at the heart some kind of truth to all of this, but it's such a bizarre, weird, foreign thing that, the Mars-Egypt connection, all of this is being played out very slowly, very gradually to acclimatize people to something that is very, very sort of disturbing. Um, A genuine announcement about alien influences on the human past and influences that may be continuing to this day. And what Picknett and Prince say is, quote, in this scenario, false evidence is being proposed to support a genuine phenomenon. This is a bold and apparently bizarre proposition, but the whole history of intelligence operations is one of absurdity and contradiction, albeit with a steely underpinning of single-minded agendas, end quote. And even though this is an unlikely scenario, the authors urge us as readers to take it seriously because it could have serious implications for the human race. We then, or, or the authors then, get into some territory that is very familiar to us from previous episodes. 
As we progressed in our investigation, however, we were astonished, not to say disturbed, by the influence exerted by the people who believe in the Nine, and ultimately, the Nine themselves. We gradually uncovered evidence of the extraordinary hold that these alleged non-human intelligences have over top industrialists, cutting-edge scientists, popular entertainers, radical parapsychologists, and key figures in military and intelligence circles. We were to find that the Nine's influence even extends to the threshold of the White House itself. Now, the connection to the White House is going to be something that I, I think is a little tenuous. You might not, uh, you might not think that. But regardless, like I said, it's a good conspiracy book. They do a great job of connecting all kinds of dots that, uh, that people like me might not think to connect. Picnet and Prince hit the high points of the story of the Nine, as we sort of heard them in our episode, our episode the other week. And they also get into the Gene Roddenberry connection, as everybody does. It is unclear how much Roddenberry was influenced by the Nine. His involvement began in 1974, several years after the original Star Trek TV series finished, but around the time that he was developing ideas for the first of the series of movies. It is said that some of the concepts in the first of these, Star Trek The Motion Picture, came from the Nine, and that they influenced some of the characters, concepts, and storylines of the Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine TV series. It is known that in 1974, Whitmore commissioned Roddenberry to write a film script based on the Lab Nine events called simply The Nine. Although the movie did not materialize during Roddenberry's lifetime, in 1995, the Hollywood industry newspapers reported that John Povell, producer of the TV series Sliders, was planning to make The Nine at last. They don't mention that Povel was Roddenberry's assistant that actually wrote the second draft of the Nine screenplay. That would have been important, but maybe a little little too granular for them to get into. Now, I talked in our Nine episode about how Roddenberry's, or had the Nine's influence on Roddenberry, had been overblown. And I think the biggest way it's overblown is the connection to Deep Space Nine. Um, there's one character, Vinod, you know, Dr. Vinod, um, in an episode, and that's that's a connection. I don't deny that. I don't deny that there might be a connection between Deep Space Nine and the Nine. Oh, they're from Deep Space. It has the number nine. I suspect that Roddenberry might not have been the link. There's a lot of testimony, such as this, from executive producer and co-creator of Deep Space Nine, Rick Berman, about Roddenberry's lack of involvement on the series. I never got the opportunity to discuss any ideas with Gene. This was very close to the end of Gene's life, and he was quite ill at the time. But he knew that we were working on something, and I definitely had his blessing to develop it. In fact, most of the controversy about Roddenberry's involvement with Deep Space Nine comes down to the question of whether or not he thought the idea was good. Berman says, oh, I got his blessing. He, he loved it. Um, some of Roddenberry's closer associates said he hated it. He thought it was the, the opposite of what Star Trek should be. Um, who knows? What we do know is that Roddenberry's uh, mental faculties were, were failing by this point. He was not himself, not the Roddenberry of old. It's, it's an open question, but I think that, I think, like I've said, I think things about the Nine's influence on Roddenberry have been overblown. That's the last I'm going to say about Gene Roddenberry. Maybe ever. I, I think ever. I think I'm just done talking about Gene Roddenberry. Probably not done talking about Star Trek, but done talking about Gene Roddenberry on the show. So Picnet and Prince raised the question of whether or not the Nine is real and whether or not they could have been 
some kind of uh, some kind of a hoax. There is another possible explanation for the phenomenon of the Nine. The events of their story were somehow orchestrated and manipulated quite deliberately by very human agencies. So, it was a hoax. It was a manipulated hoax. It was a lie. It was real. There's a number of options for what the Nine might be. But one of the things that Picknett and Prince get into with you know selections like that and thoughts like that is that government mind control experimentation and projects might have been involved with the Nine. We saw in our episode on the Nine how Dr. Puharik was involved in government experimentation and projects during the 1950s and probably afterward. It's not a giant connection to make. It's not a giant leap to make that connection, rather, is what I should say. And and like a good conspiracy book, which this is, the connections they make are not outside the realm of plausibility. Now, some of the other things they say might be, and and, and this is this is a a sort of sort of historical sort of peeve of mine. But they mention Vice President Henry Wallace, who was Roosevelt's vice president during his third term, the 1941 to 1945 term. Wallace, they said, had an interest in the esoteric, had an interest in the work of the nine. And they said this was significant because Wallace was, and this is what what they say, a fundamentalist Christian. And did some research, looked into it, and I, I don't know how you can apply the label of fundamentalist or fundamentalism, especially in the context of the early 20th century, um, to Henry Wallace. Wallace was a Presbyterian by upbringing, um, mainline Protestant religion uh, denomination, not evangelical at all. In fact, the not, not fundamentalist, evangelical fundamentalist at all. In fact, the fundamentalists of the early 20th century were pushing back against denominations like the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the uh, the, the Episcopalians in the United States. Um, and Wallace rejects the Presbyterian Church, leaves it, does a lot of exploring, um, spiritual exploring over his life, eventually winds up being part of the liberal Catholic Church in the United States, which is not a fundamentalist um, sect either. So that bugged me uh, just in a sort of definitional sense, but I I don't think that Picknett and Prince were were trying to do something mendacious. I think it might just be, you know, a a question of of terminology being used differently by different people and not knowing some of the nuances of of, of that sort of stuff. I'm certainly not, you know, doubting or denying or questioning Wallace's, you know, broadly Christian credentials. It's sort of pigeonholing him as a, uh, as a, as a fundamentalist that I, have, uh, that I have an issue with. But Wallace is an example, you know, former vice president of one of the powerful political people that have some connection to the work of the Nine, the work of Puharik, the work of these um, new Egyptologists and all of the other uh, shady actors that Picknett and Prince talk about. They also talk about something that we're familiar with from this show, which is the When Prophecy Fails book about Dorothy Martin's um, channeling and predictions of the end of the world involved Charles and Lillian Lofhead, who were tied in with the nine as well. And uh, Picknett and Prince sort of speculate as to whether or not the sociologists from Minnesota were part of conducting a sinister experiment, that the When Prophecy Fails thing was actually a setup to 
I don't know. They're, they're not clear on this argument, but this is what they have to say about it. The most likely answer is that this shadowy but all-important group were conducting their own experiment, and it is likely that they were an official but secret agency investigating the behavior of circles based around channeled extraterrestrial communications. We know that the group was being used as an unwitting experimental subject by the Minnesota University researchers, and it may be significant that there was a local newspaper called the Minnesota Clarion. You'll recall, perhaps, that uh, Martin's channeled aliens were from the planet Clarion, but not, I don't believe, the same planet Clarion that uh, Truman Bethram's space girlfriend, Ara Rains, was from. So they go in a little bit more to uh, powerful people connected to this, and they make a point about Senator Claiborne Pell of Pell Grant fame and his interest in some of these subjects, and they note that Claiborne Pell and then Vice President Al Gore were both interested in broadly esoteric topics. They don't provide a lot of documentation for what that interest would be, especially on the part of Vice President Gore, but they arrive at this bit of speculation. There is cause for concern here. Not only do Vice President Al Gore and Senator Claiborne Pell share the same esoteric interests, but they are also political allies. It is reasonable to assume that Gore is familiar with the Nine, If so, how much is he influenced by their teachings or, in the worst-case scenario, even their instructions? The evidence suggests that he is by no means the only top-ranking American politician to have been drawn into the Nine's sphere of influence. Any avid fans of this book are welcome to explain where a lot of this evidence is, but I don't think it's necessarily all in the book, or at least not as much of it as I would like to see for those kinds of speculations and those leaps. But again, they aren't stated as fact, right? They're stated as, well, a worst case scenario could be that Gore is acting on instructions from the Nine, which is really possibly a manipulated phenomenon to push somebody's agenda. So what is the agenda? What is the end game here? There are three possibilities. Here's the first. One, a powerful cabal is trying to establish contact with extraterrestrials either through a physical stargate or telepathic communication or possession. In other words, channeling. This would explain the involvement of official U.S. agencies in the search for something momentous in Egypt. In this scenario, Puharik's attempts to establish contact with the Nine were based on the belief that they really are out there but that mental communication is difficult and has to be encouraged in likely trainees. Okay, sounds good. What's option number two? Two, the conspirators are deliberately building up an expectancy that such contact is about to happen. In this scenario, an entirely fictitious belief system has been constructed and disseminated through various sources. Okay, not entirely different from, uh, from option one. How about door number three? Three, both of the above. The conspirators are trying to establish real contact, but are also engaged in a covert softening up exercise to prepare us for the imminent return of our creators, the ancient gods of Egypt. There is a further final bit of speculation in which they engage. I like this one. There is a further possibility. The conspirators themselves could be being duped by the Council of Nine. History is replete with cases of otherworldly visions and voices that may promise heaven, but who actually deliver something quite other. Or, as Shakespeare put it, and oftentimes to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with honest trifles, to betrays in deepest consequence. But never before 
have they had so many of the world's most powerful individuals in their insubstantial grip. Okay, so that's basically the end of the book. And what I like about this book, and and this is, yes, this is a a weird episode where we, we sort of go through a book, but... Like I said before, it was a little too much to add to our episode on the nine. It was um, a little too much to be sort of a, a little bonus episode. Uh, so we have this. What I like about this is it does a good job of speculating, engaging in informed speculation about what the purpose might be or what the explanation might be for the continued popularity of this strand of alien speculation and sort of pseudo pop archeology span type stuff. It gives it a purpose. It gives it a point. It draws it into a bigger picture other than, well, here, here's this too. Um, ancient aliens has been on forever. Uh, I guess it makes good money. That's actually probably the real reason, or it's cheap to produce and it brings in enough money and it gets enough ratings that it fills some of the time. The history channel has to, has to have stuff on the air. That's a, a prosaic explanation for why some of this stuff hangs around. But I really like this idea that all of this is designed to condition us for some sort of takeover, some sort of subjugation of our very will. I enjoy that idea. Um, I enjoy, I enjoy I enjoy people playing with that idea. I don't necessarily enjoy the idea of my will being subjugated. I do kind of enjoy the idea of subjugating others to my will. I think that uh, that could come in really handy sometimes. But um, yeah, the nine, the Stargate conspiracy, Picnic and Prince. It's a heck of a ride. I enjoyed reading this book. It took me back to my earliest days reading conspiracy books and coming out the other side of it thinking i don't believe it but i could kind of see this yeah if i squint and look at it the right way yeah i like this great book i don't know if i recommend you reading it it's a little dated the millennial cusp of the year 2000 thing is uh, is a bit old but overall great stuff Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels or the, the comment section under the entry for this episode on the saucerlife.com website. And we'll try to address it on the, uh, the, the sort of afterlife episode, which is coming next week. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.